This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. Even I get caught up in the fire goal and the finish line, but fire is a journey and all along the journey, you gain all this freedom to make your life better. It's why I retired when I did. We were not at financial independence. We weren't at a point where we could stop making money, but we decided there's no point in suffering for two more years to get there faster. Let's take advantage of the freedom we've already amassed and make our life better today. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about leaving a stressful career and transitioning into early retirement. The amount of workers who left their jobs last year broke records. By some estimates, nearly 40 million people quit their jobs in the United States. Now, there are a variety of reasons for this, including lack of work-life balance, health risks associated with the pandemic, wanting to try out a new career path, or just starting your own business. But what if you had been financially preparing to say goodbye for quite a while? What if you had enough money to quit your job and still live a comfortable life? Well, Kristen from Arizona is here to show us how she did just that. Kristen is a former CPA who retired early last year to spend more time with her family and pursue personal passions after 15 plus years working long hours in a stressful career. She writes about her family's journey to financial independence and early retirement on her blog, richfrugallife.com. Kristen's blog was nominated for Best Financial Independence content by Plutus in 2021. When Kristen isn't sharing her family fire journey and helping others with theirs, she enjoys hiking outdoors with her husband and her daughter. Welcome to the show, Kristen. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you here. And thank you for being transparent and opening up and helping us understand how you did this incredible feat. So talk to us about how you found the fire movement in the first place and why did it appeal to you? So we stumbled upon the FIRE movement in 2018, and I read a magazine article that was very short, and it just mentioned it, and I had never heard the topic before, and naturally it piqued my interest, so then I kind of immediately dove into the Mr. Money Mustache and all the blogs, your money or your life, uh, everything I could find. We were probably a bit later in finding FIRE than I think a lot of people are. We were both in our mid-30s. 10 to 15 years into careers. We had a two-year-old at home. So a bit later and a bit more established in our financial lives than maybe some of the younger generation that's just stumbling upon fire now. But really, it was the perfect time for us. We were struggling both in kind of high power, very demanding careers to raise our daughter, not feeling like we had enough time to do anything right. Uh, I was stressed out at my job. i my, my husband was okay with his job, but I was miserable in mine. I had been for years. I knew I didn't want the next step, which was the, the partner step, which was the ultimate. You sacrifice your entire life for a lot of money. And I just knew that wasn't appealing to me. 
So it was really the perfect time for us to stumble upon it. And what was probably the most appealing to us, to me at least, was not so much the retire early piece of it. It was more the concept of life optimization. So taking and building financial freedom now and doing the things you can do now to to design a life you love now, using that freedom along the journey to build a life you have you love now rather than slaving away for 40, 50 years, I think in my mind, that was what we were going to do. We had kind of been talking about this concept for a few years at that point anyway, since the birth of our daughter, which I think a lot of people reevaluate their lives once they have kids. Mine was a little different in that it wasn't just the birth of our daughter. It was a near-death experience I had during the birth of our daughter, which you don't really hear about. And I'm a worrier. And it was one of the things I didn't even let myself worry about. So I was like, oh yeah, people don't die having kids anymore. But I almost did. And it's the reason we can only have one kid. And it was kind of a traumatic thing. So we had spent the probably two years leading up to that, really starting to think through life optimization, realizing we had been saving a lot of money. And we, I mean, we'd been spending a lot of money too, but we had good, we had good salaries, but we had kind of been working toward a path that was maybe not aligned with the values we had for ourselves. So we were already questioning that. So I think to see that early retirement was possible or that there were ways to start to optimize what we were already doing to achieve freedom and, and work toward, you know, okay, well, I hate my career and we have more than enough. Can we start to work toward building this opportunity for both of us to retire early, but kind of take the opportunities for one of us to stop working or to go part-time or slow down now so that we have more time to do the things we love now and can kind of get back the health and the happiness in our life that we had been sacrificing so long. Intentionality is what you're describing here. And it sounds like you guys had that in the background for a while, but then it sort of turned into hyper-focus when your daughter was born and and your near-death experience happened. So talk to us a little about, you said you found fire a little late, but it sounds like you were, you know, savers at that point. So you had a, a head start, am I right? We were at a point in our careers where we were both in the low six figures. So, and we had a modest house. It was plenty for us. And we, you know, spent money on travel and we spent money on things, but we weren't lavish about it, I guess, for a while. So we had a pretty good savings rate. We had, we were probably at a point where we had half a million in investments already. So we were well down the path. And by the time we learned about fire, we were, you know, probably halfway to where we, we ultimately needed to be. After having our daughter, my, my company had very generous maternity leave. So I was able to take six months off. And in six months, I realized how hard being a stay-at-home parent is <laughs> and, <laughs> and that I couldn't do it at least in those kind of younger years. So in my mind, I was like, okay, I guess I have to go back to work. Because at that, at that time, those are the two options, right? You either, you know, work till you're 65, or you are a stay at home mom. And then at some point, you have to go get another job, but you've lost your place in your career. And it was, I mean, it was a big struggle for me because of kind of where I was at in my career. And even though I didn't particularly like a lot of what I was doing, I was good at it. And there were some aspects I liked of it. And it was really how I derived my self worth for the 15 years, right? It was the accolades and achievements at work was where I was getting it. So it was kind of a, a big struggle. And um, when I had, you know, after the maternity leave, and I went back to work and kind of thought, okay, this is it, I guess I'm doing this for however many years, you know, I guess start talking to them about partner and making more money. Our 
spending actually went drastically up in the year or two before fire is when I started splurging on, you know, designer bags and massages and things that I, it was like coping spending. That's what I'll call it. It was to cope with being unhappy and none of it made me happy. And so fire kind of brought us back to maybe our more frugal ways and helped us dial it back. But yeah, I I feel like we were already pretty far down that path. We were never at the point where we were drowning in credit card debt or, you know, more had bitten off more than we can chew. So we were lucky enough and privileged enough to pass that part of the journey that I think is probably the hardest for a lot of people when they start out a little earlier. I appreciate what you were sharing with us there, that sort of identity crisis that a lot of young parents have where it's like, well, (laughs) being a stay-at-home parent's really tough, but I hate my soul-sucking job. So (laughs) who am I, right? I have to do something. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about what you did at the point where you said, okay, I want to do this fire thing. What did you do to change your financial situation to amp things up to make that a possibility? And I think you said you took the leap early or uh, mid 2020. Is that right? Yeah. March of 2020 is when I finally left my job. So what did you do to get to that point from discovering fire to saying, okay, let's make this a go. Let's do this. Yeah. So, so by the end of 2018, I had done all my kind of nerdy spreadsheet analysis and had gotten my husband on board with, Hey, look, (laughs) doesn't this sound great? And look, we could do this. The things we primarily did were taking a look at our spending. We had been tracking our spending for ever, you know, for as long as we had been together. And I think it's really powerful to do that. But I hadn't been, we hadn't been focused on setting a budget or really challenging what we were spending money on. So we did take a fresh look at our budget and try to be more intentional about what we were spending money on. So I, I mean, to completely embarrass myself, like in 2017, I think, or right the year before we found fire, I spent like $11,000 on clothes and designer things. And that's super embarrassing for me now because I don't even have half the things anymore. <laughs> None of them got the use they needed. And it, but it was just, we were just blowing money because we had, you know, enough of it, but it got to, okay, let's focus and let's decide what we value and what we want to spend our money on. We like good wine. We like good beer. We like good food and we like to travel. So let's spend our money on those things. And, you know, this is obviously before the pandemic made traveling not appealing to do with children, but let's spend our money on those things. And then let's look at these other things that we care less about and start to cut back. Let's cut our cell phone bill. Let's stop spending so much on convenient eating out, you know, let's do our fancy date nights out, but let's not order, you know, pizza delivery every Friday because we're too lazy to cook because it's just not that good. And it costs a lot of money, you know? And, and that was probably the biggest stage. And we took our spending down from probably, I think we were ranging between, you know, 65 and 85,000 a year at not including taxes. And we took it down. It's like between 50 and 55 now. And Probably 55 is maybe the sweet spot now if we had robust travel and robust wine and, you know, all the, all the fun things we want to do. The other thing I did and then kind of immediately regretted is around to the, around that same time we found fire and got on board with it, we moved across the country for my husband's job. And it was kind of the easy out I could leave my career because I was at the same place for 15 years and they were grooming me to be a partner or a director in the firm. And it was 
my kind of graceful exit out, I was like, you know, we're moving across the country. I think I'm going to take some time to spend with my daughter. Don't transfer me to the Phoenix office. I don't, I don't want to work for a while. But then of course we, and I agreed to work part-time for a little bit to kind of finish on my project. And we got here and then I started taking calls from recruiters and then I accepted a full-time job here. Some of that was linked to the kind of identity crisis and, you know, need to be something other than just a mom. And some of it I do think was linked to the trying to pursue the fire movement. Cause I was like, well, if I make, you know, if I keep making money, we'll get there in like a year or two. And you know, wouldn't that be nice? But I mean, I, I immediately realized it was a mistake. I stayed there for nine months and you know, it was a toxic work culture. Anyway, the work was easier and less hours than what I had been doing, but it was just bad in a different way. And so the earning more income was something I did for the fire movement, but it's not necessarily something I would recommend unless you, you need to, because really having more time and freedom was what we were looking for, not necessarily more money. You talked about happy spending area. At one point, you were spending upwards of $85,000 a year, and you thought that maybe that was just a little bit too much. And then there were times during your fire journey or, or currently where 50000 might have seemed like a little bit too little. Was there a moment in time that you've had some discussions with your husband where you kind of went overboard in the super saver way where you're like, okay, actually, we need that fine wine back. Like, talk to us about that a little bit more. I do think I'm probably more of the like gung-ho, get on board and let's let's cut all this stuff out. I, I do a lot of our finances, but we talk about it regularly. We, we have kind of like what you and your wife have. We have, the, we have the dates to talk about, you know, our, our finances. And he did like gently push back in some areas, you know, where, you know, we're not going to stop drinking altogether because we enjoy fine wine. You know, I don't want to not eat out ever. I don't think I ever took it to where we felt deprived, but I do think it's, it's easy, right? To get on board with that. When you start going down a path and you're like, oh, we're so close, let's get there. And now I have a blog and I share what we spend. So now I'm like, ooh, we spent a thousand dollars on wine. You know, <laughs> I need to go tell people that. And that's embarrassing, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> I feel like we've got a decent balance. This year, we intentionally worked more money for travel and more money for restaurants into our budget. We're trying to do weekly dates and trying to get rid of the kind of guilt of, you know, spending that money that, that maybe is, I don't know where it comes from. Some of it's probably lingering from when we spent too much on things that didn't make us happy. And some of it is just, I don't know, I'm just a frugal person, I guess, but well, a lot of people, including myself, it, sometimes it comes from your childhood. Sometimes it comes from how you were raised. Sometimes maybe you didn't have a lot and so you want to hold on to it. Or maybe you had plenty and you want to hold on to it. It's, it all depends on your your background, right? And I've definitely dissected that for myself quite a bit about why I do what I do. So you were saving, I mean, upwards of 50% of your income just based on what you were talking about, you know, earning in the low six figures for both of you and then spending you know, between 50 and 85. So that's a huge savings rate. Now that you are moved on to this new zone of your life, you guys are probably saving a lot less. How are you coping with that as a frugal person? Maybe you're not spending as much and that irks you a little bit as a person, but now you're probably not saving as much. How are you dealing with that? So ironically, our savings rate did not fall very much when I stopped working. It's really weird. Yeah. So 
And some of that is, I think, is pandemic. So we didn't travel as much during the pandemic. And we had our daughter out of childcare during the pandemic, which I would, we were, were not planning to do. We were planning to keep her in part-time. That was part of why I waited to that point to retire was so I could have some, you know, alone time. But it surprisingly didn't drop as much as I thought it would. And I think I had this fear, even though we had been saving more than 50% and, and we were financially fine, I had this fear, like if I stopped working, we wouldn't be, we'd be just cutting by or something, or we'd feel like we had to cut back on things we wanted to spend money on. And the reality is that that didn't happen. I think a lot of my money seems to have gone to taxes <laughs> and daycare <laughs> and my coping spending and... um so I do, I do think it'll be a little lower, but we're still, I mean, we're still saving in the 60% range, which is, you know, just a, a sign to me that I need to maybe loosen the reins a little more. And I think that's my own mental struggle that maybe I need to deal with. But Well, talk to us about that, because it sounds like you're still on some sort of version of trying to find your version of fire, right? So you've transitioned out of your career. Are you still on a path to whatever your version of family financial independence is? Yeah. So depending on when you air this, we've actually just crossed, (laughs) we've actually just crossed our financial independence number. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. I do think, you know, you can do all the math and numbers you want. And I'm a former accountant and spreadsheet enthusiast, but at the end of the day, we're, I just turned 40. My husband's in his mid thirties. We have a five-year-old child. So there's a lot of uncertainty in that runway. So I think I'm still in the like, want to accumulate more and trying to find the balance of how much more, right? And now that we're kind of at the point where in theory, we could live the life we say we want to live and pay for it and not have to work or make any more money. It's, I think I still have the itch to like build that extra buffer, but at the same time, it doesn't need to be a savings rate of 50, 60%, right? At that point. So I do think it's, I'm still working through that. It's, you know, people, people can veer in either direction on the financial train and, and both are detrimental in different ways. Right. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Saving nothing can have uh, quite a few detriments to it and, and saving everything could all also have quite a few detriments to it. I think it's just all finding what's right for you in different seasons of your life too. Right? I mean, I don't need to be a 50% saver forever, but hey, if I'm going to do that for a period of time and it's made a difference in my life, or if I want to go back to that for some extra comfort, I don't think there's a right or wrong with all of this. It's all personal. As you and I know, we talk about that quite a bit, that this stuff is personal. Can you talk to us about, for the person who's listening, it's like, what's fire? What's that all about? Like, what did you do to amass enough money to be able to feel comfortable? Is this in a taxable brokerage? Are you doing this through your Roth IRA? Like, talk to us about the technical stuff, because I know you know all about that being in a, a numbers lady. You can call me a nerd. It's okay. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm a nerd. I'm a, that's like, you know, in the 80s when they called people nerds, I was like, oh, that hurts my feelings. But now in like 2022, it's like, yeah, that's I'm a right. Nerd. I'm a nerd. It's cool. That's right. <laughs> The best path is is really just trying to amass as much as you can in investments. I know there's a lot of people that want to retire early that are scared to put the money in their tax-deferred accounts, like your 401k and your IRA, but there are ways to get that money out. And there's been a lot of studies done, and the mad scientist does a lot of this stuff on his site. There's been studies done and examples shown where even 
putting that money in, even if you end up having to pay the 10% penalty down the line, you actually would still have been better off than just keeping it in your taxable brokerage. What we do is we're fortunate to be in a position where we can max out our tax deferred accounts. So we do, we do put the max in now. I will caveat that one of our mistakes in before the fire movement and before discovering the fire movement is we were not doing that. And we could have very, you know, we, we saved enough money that we could have been maxing out our 401ks and it would have been a great time to do it because the market was booming and we didn't. And everybody kind of makes mistakes on the journeys that when, you know, when you learn this stuff, you just got to say, okay, this is where I'm at and what are the best steps to move forward. And so for us, that was, you know, switching, having as much stuff in cash as we did and as much we were paying down our 2% mortgage, which is great, but I, I would have maxed my tax advantage accounts out before I did that if I were to go back. But putting as much as you can in those and then just being smart about what you put in your taxable brokerage, investing everything else you're comfortable with. I'm a fan of emergency funds. I know people like to poo-poo those, but if you have to put an emergency on your credit card, you're going to be paying a lot of money in interest. So making sure you have an amount that's safe and it may not earn a ton, but to cover those those emergencies and then putting the rest in taxable and just being smart about what you put in taxable. You don't want to be earning your junk bonds or your high interest bonds should not be in your taxable because that's going to give you a lot of income that's taxed at the same rates your paycheck would be taxed at. But dividend stocks or index funds that are, you know, total stock market or something like that are great to put in your taxable accounts. And when you start to get closer to the point where you might be ready to retire, you just have to have a plan for how you're going to pay for those early years. So right now we're at a point where I think, I think the last time I checked, we could cover eight or nine years out of our taxable accounts because you start collecting dividends on that stuff too. So if, if we need 40,000 of expenses going forward, but we're getting 10 to 15 in dividends, that's 10 to 15 of income we can start using at that point without selling any of our base investments. So you, you know, you might not need as much as you think you do in your taxable account, but start saving and thinking of a way, thinking how much you'll be able to cover and then thinking of a way of how you can draw down on your, your tax for whether that's through a Roth conversion ladder or, you know, you'll be at the certain age that you can tap those accounts by the time you need them or just paying the penalty. And, you know, it, if it sat there for 20, 30 years, you probably got the benefit that's more than that 10% penalty. You're saying that you're not utilizing this taxable nest egg to live on right now between your, your it sounds like your husband's still working and you're going to be utilizing some of the taxable income to live on, or, or do I have that in, incorrect? Yeah. So right now we like literally passed our financial independence number last week. I haven't even put it on the blog, but I have, I Woo-hoo! assume by the time you air this, I will have publicly announced it. Yeah. Uh, late January. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so I should probably draft that blog post. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just gave you homework. Oh no, it's just supposed to be a non-working retirement. I for this. Um, <laughs> but we're, we're at a point where actually my husband, he's, he's four and a half years younger than me. And he actually likes his job right now. He's about to get promoted to kind of the position he wanted where he'll really be able to make a difference. And so he does plan to work for a few more years before retiring. It's nice for him to know that he doesn't have to, or that if he doesn't like it, he could, you know, do something. I mean, he could go work at Starbucks if he wanted, we'd, you know, cause we'll be at that point. But for now he plans on working and he makes, you know, he still makes six figures and a good salary. And so right now we're living off that, which is, which is one of the reasons I'm 
comfortable with trying to beef up our, our spending. Cause if, you know, we get past our point that we say we need, we should probably enjoy a little bit of the money now, you know, hopefully at the point he retires, then I do think we will be tapping those taxable accounts first and we won't have any income. So we will, as long as this is still allowable under the tax rules, be doing the Roth conversion ladders. And so we'll convert that money over. But I think if he were, even if he works for one or two more years, I think we'll have our taxable accounts in a pretty good place where they could get us close to where we need to be before we start collecting. We, we both have small pensions from our first employer and, you know, it'll be maybe be social security by the time we need it. I don't know. I'm not, we're not <laughs> counting on that one, but. I do not include that sometimes in all of my calculations, but Hey, it'll be a nice treat if it is there. Can you tell us what the Roth conversion ladder is? So the Roth conversion ladder is if you have money in a 401k at work or in a traditional IRA, that is money you took a tax deduction for. Whereas, you know, your Roth is your after-tax money. And if you're below a certain income, you can only put so much into that Roth every year. However, there is a conversion you can do to take your tax advantage money and roll it into a Roth. And at the time you do that, you do have to pay tax on the money depending on whether you took the deduction before or not. If you did non-deductible, high-income people a lot of times do what they call a backdoor Roth, which is where you make a non-deductible contribution into your traditional IRA. Then you immediately convert it to a Roth. So basically, there's, no, there's nothing to pay taxes on at that point. But you kind of backdoor it into a Roth. The conversion is taking the money that's sitting in your retirement accounts, moving it into a Roth, and you will have to pay taxes at the time. But after five years, you can technically tap that money. So people, a lot of times, take advantage of the fact in their early retirement years where they're not making any money. So your tax rate is very, very low. You can actually take capital gains at a 0% rate up to like seventy or 80000 a year, I think, if you're married. I don't remember the exact numbers. But you can convert that money at a very low rate, and then you can access it during retirement if you need to. That makes a lot of sense. And so at that point, when you both aren't making very much money, whatever you guys are choosing to do, you'll be at such a low tax rate that converting a hundred grand or whatever won't, well, depending on how much you contribute, your tax rate might be affected by that because it is income. But if you do it at a low enough rate, the rate will be super low for the conversion. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. You just kind of do it up to those limits and you can get basically tax-free conversions. And if you're making nothing and you convert under the standard deduction of $24,000, then you pay 0% taxes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. Well, that was <laughs> yeah. fun. Math, everybody. Math. Ner- nerds and math your tax are cool. Is a good thing. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. 
Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Let's jump back into the show. I have a couple questions about this fire situation. Big fan. For the past five, well, uh, probably five years that since I discovered, I, I discovered in my mid thirties too. So uh, I know you you mentioned that you feel like you got there late. I did too. Did a lot of things to prepare. I was on the Ramsey train. I got rid of all my debt. I had some, I've been investing for a while, you know, but then really optimized things when I learned about fire. What I transitioned to eventually is I want to do something that makes me happy. I might not make a lot of money, but it'll be better than what I was doing. Have you thought about, and maybe that's not now in the season in your life that you're in, have you thought about utilizing your skills in a part-time capacity or something that you enjoy doing to create a small business in the future? I've thought about it. I think I thought more about the part-time option earlier on before kind of realizing that we were almost at the point where we didn't need the money. At this point, I I can say with pretty good certainty that I will never go back to a real corporate job. There are appealing things about entrepreneurship, but I think at this point, probably if I'm using my skills, it's probably going to be more on a volunteer basis and part-time basis to try to, you know, help use kind of my freedom to try to do a little good, I guess, but I never say never. Right. I think that's fantastic. And and I think that I told myself when I transitioned from my corporate career to this entrepreneur world that I'm in, that I never wanted to be one of those guys on the internet that said, quit your job and become an entrepreneur. It's the best thing in the world, man. Because there's a lot of stuff you still have to do as an entrepreneur and actually have a lot less departments to help you to do them. So if you're working as a busy CPA, you probably still had a HR department, a sales department, a marketing department, you know, legal team. You got to be all those when you're an entrepreneur. So the last thing you want to do after leaving a stressful career is create a stressful job at home where you're making a quarter of what you used to make, but you're just as stressed. So 
I think there's a balance and I, I'm figuring that over the past two years of trying to, to do that. But I think there is something to utilizing your time and talents to feel like you're making a difference or helping, whether that is earning money or not earning money. That's something that I'm still exploring and learning myself. And it sounds like obviously you're open to that and and learning about it in the future too. My husband does have some entrepreneurial tendencies and ideas and things he wants to do. But at the same time, he's, when we talked about it, it was a I don't want the pressure of having to make money doing these things. Like I want to get to the point, let's get to the point where you tell me I don't have to ever make another dollar again and then let me go try these things. And I'm not going to go blow, you know, all our money starting this business, but I won't, you know, I won't be in it for the money per se. And that's, I think anything entrepreneurial that either of us does is going to be, you know, the money might be a nice side benefit, but trying to not make something about having to earn money. I like that. I like that. I read a book in the fall called Die With Zero, and it it really hit me as a super saver that I I really liked. And I think you and I have had some conversations on social media about it. So this is my Die With Zero question. If you had to spend $10,000 more per year, Kristen, what would you spend it on that would make you smile? Travel. That's easy. Travel and maybe, maybe a little more, maybe a little more fancy wine, maybe another fancy wine trip a year. Awesome. Well, and I understand too, again, we're talking about seasonality of life too. How old is your daughter? She's five. Yeah. So five. Okay. The the pandemic had a part of it, but also for a while it was the, you know, you got a kid in diapers and it's, you got to pack 50,000 things every time you go somewhere. And it just wasn't fun for us to travel anymore at that point. But now she's getting to an age where it'll be a little more fun when, when things kind of open up for us to start doing that again. So I'm looking forward to spending more money and time planning stuff for travel. I love that. Well, I feel like it's uh, the job of super savers to grill other super savers with um, (laughs) how can we enjoy life today, but still have that security that we need that makes us feel like we're taking care of our families and moving in the right direction. So I get it. Kristen, I'm going to ask you another nerdy math question. There is a big debate going on out there that this 4% rule that a lot of us use as well as retirement planners is dead. Can you tell us what the 4% rule is and whether you think it's dead? What? It's dead. People have been saying this for years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you think? Tell us what it is and and what do you think about all that? Okay. So the 4% rule is kind of the rule of thumb among retirees and, and early retirees of what is a safe withdrawal rate from your portfolio. And there was a study done back in the 90s called the Trinity Study where they analyzed rolling 30-year periods of all sorts of different portfolios and different timeframes to try to figure out, you know, at what point would these people have run out of money? How much could they take out and not run out of money? And the general consensus at the time was there was virtually 0% chance of you running out of money if at any of those times you had taken out 4% plus inflation. So you start at a base rate of 4% and then you add inflation to that every year. And so that's kind of been known as the safe withdrawal rate. And it's how people come up with their fire number. You know, 25 times your expenses is basically a 4% withdrawal rate. It's it's how we came up with ours. And it's just a general rule of thumb people have used. And I think the biggest reason people have started challenging it is back, you know, in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, you could get treasury bonds that paid 4% or more, right? You could basically have a risk-free rate of 4% or more. And we haven't seen bond rates that high in a while. When you start to venture into the non-investment grade bonds, you, can, you could get 3%. But 
So people have been challenging that for years and with good reason, I think. And Morningstar actually recently came out with a study that I dove into. And I know a lot of people have been talking about that said, well, it's not 4% anymore. It's 3.3%. And they did a similar study to the Trinity study when they came up with it. So is the 4% rule dead? I actually don't think it is, but I don't think it's a slam dunk anymore. And the reason I don't think it's dead and it can still work for some people and in some scenarios, and I'll put that caveat out there that personal finance is personal and you will have to pick whatever withdrawal rate makes you comfortable and works for your lifestyle. But the caveat that was in the Morningstar report, you know, there were a bunch of assumptions they used. And some of the assumptions were pretty rigid and they were, you're going to take out this fixed amount you know, say it's 50,000 plus inflation every year. And you're going to take it out no matter what the market does, no matter what happens in your life, you're going to keep taking that money out. But what if there's a down market in your first five years of retirement, which is kind of, that's like the kiss of death in early retirement is your sequence of returns risk is you have a big drop in the market in your early years and you de- you have to deplete too much of your portfolio to take it out. And they acknowledged that their assumptions were pretty rigid. And if someone were willing to be flexible and maybe take out less money in a down year or forego the inflation bump in those years, they, they could get closer to 4% or even above 4%. And they tested out several different scenarios that did show, okay, in some of these scenarios, and, and some were complicated and people probably wouldn't want to jump through those hoops, but even foregoing inflation in a down year. So if the market was down for a couple years and you just didn't take the inflation bump and you kept taking the same amount of money would get you up to 3.76%, I think. So you could get almost back up there. And there was a lot of, it's a balanced portfolio they look at. So it's 50-50 stocks and bonds. And I think everybody knows stocks tend to return more than bonds, especially these days. And the reason they do that and that that usually provides the best return is because of this sequence of return risks. And if you know the market is not going to go up every year, I know you know, there are probably some younger generations that have only seen that other than our, you know, what, two-month recession we had a couple years ago. But the market will go up and down. But I, I do think when you start to work through these alternatives where if you're able and willing to be flexible in down years to maybe forego the inflation or tweak your spending, or if you have a way to earn additional income or you have a pension or some social security money coming, there are there are ways to be flexible and, and where I totally think this 4% could work. That said, I will, I'll put out there, if you told me I had to do the 4% rule, it does stress me out. I, <laughs> I don't think it's dead. I think it works. I feel comfortable using it to come up with our targets. But at the same time, I mean, I know my husband's going to work a couple more years and I know we won't need to take out 4%. So it's, it's easy for me to say it's fine and dandy, but... I I do think flexibility is key. And somebody who's shooting for lean fire where they can barely cover their expenses and they're cutting back everything, you know, in their target, it's going to be harder for someone like that to adapt to spending less and taking out less money than somebody who's got like a big, you know, a big budget that's maybe got a lot of extra fun money in there where they could say, okay, maybe we won't take that $10,000 cruise this year because the market's down. We'll take it, you know, next year or in two years. And the younger you are, the more, flexibility you have and you know to earn money or or tweak things it's not like when you're 75 years old and retiring you know there's only so long you want to put that stuff off where I could see why a fixed amount would be appealing but 
And I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, having some flexibility built into your lifestyle, your portfolio could make this a a moot point. 3.3 or 5 or 4, whatever you decide it is. Yeah, having that flexibility helps. So Kristen, there's somebody listening right now and they are working in a job that they hate. The pandemic made it worse. They didn't like it before. Pandemic made it worse. They know that they aren't there right now, but they've been saving and, you know, they don't have any debt. They're working on it. What could they do to get to a point where they felt comfortable enough to step away? What's one step that they could take following this interview to get where you are? I mean, I think it, not having any high interest debt is key. So if, if they're at that point, I would say focusing on trying to increase your savings rate a little bit. We were never on the hardcore fire as fast as you can sacrifice everything train. I I think that works for some people, but I, I think it causes burnout and stress and misery for a lot of other people. But working to improve your savings rate, and you can do that two ways, right? You can cut expenses or you can make more money. We leaned toward cutting expenses because we didn't want to work more to make more money. But asking for a raise at work could help you make more money doing something you're already doing. And tracking your expenses can help you identify the areas you're wasting money, right? I I don't think people should cut out things they love just to hit fire sooner per se, but doing either of those things can help you improve your savings rate and then making sure you're investing that savings in low fee, safe-ish investments, right? Okay, don't put it all in crypto. <laughs> I don't care how much hate I get from that comment, but you know, like put it in the stock total stock market or S&P 500 or something like that. When you're not paying a lot of fees, you're going to get the benefits of the equity returns and that will help you move down that path. And really I I know a lot of people and even I get caught up in the the fire goal and the finish line, but fire is a journey and all along the journey you gain all this freedom to make your life better. It's why I retired when I did. We were not at financial independence. We could not have, we weren't at a point where we could stop making money, but we decided there's no point in suffering for two more years to get there faster. Let's take advantage of the freedom we've already amassed and make our life better today. We'll still get there someday, but it's kind of the same thing. If someone hates their job and they build more freedom, they'll have the freedom to take a job they like better that maybe doesn't pay as well and they don't have to focus on the pay and the benefits as much as maybe the fulfillment they get or, or whatever piece of their life they're trying to improve. And so I would just say, you know, keeping that in mind is kind of key. Talk to me about how life is different for you now from the last day of your job that was very stressful to where you are right now. It's totally different. <laughs> it's totally different. Yeah, I was, I was miserable working and I don't think fire is the solution to being miserable, but I do think getting rid of the toxicity in my life and having more time to spend with my family and giving us balance. You know, my husband and I aren't debating who's going to leave work early to go pick up our kid at daycare because it's, you know, I'm able to take on more of those responsibilities. I'm able to cook healthy meals for us. I'm, you know, not having to answer my phone or respond to emails at all hours of the day. And it's just, even though he's still working, it's just a slower, less rushed and less stressed out life for us right now. One of my big whys was was health. I mean, I was miserable at my job, but I was also really unhealthy. I was super stressed out. I was overweight. I was totally going to have like a heart attack and die young. I mean, it was just kind of inevitable. I've lost 36 pounds. I exercise. I 
have bonded with my daughter so much over, you know, during the pandemic, we spent a lot of time together, sometimes too much, but sometimes just the right amount. For us, it's been a blessing. You know, I'm still trying to work through my, the, the ego and the loss of purpose. And, and some days I still struggle with that and, you know, wonder, should I, you know, should I be, do I need to be making money to be worthy or do I, you know, that's still a struggle that hasn't gone away. That's why I say this isn't like the solution to all your problems, but it has solved a number of our problems. And and I'm, I'm just really grateful that we've been in this position to kind of slow things down and start to enjoy the day to day a little more. Well, Kristen, I really appreciate you sharing your life with us today and all that you've been through over the past 40 minutes in this conversation. I, I think what we had a conversation about was intentionality, trying to move towards the life that you want to have and knowing that it just can't happen overnight in a second. It takes time. But if you take those small steps to get there, you can have a new life. You can have a, a changed situation where you are pursuing those family values that you set out to have. So Kristen, thank you so much for your time today. You have an excellent blog that I have really spent a lot of time reading and enjoying lately. Where can people find that and learn more from you? I write at richfrugallife.com and I try to post weekly, but you know, I don't always, but I'm, I'm an open book on the blog. I'm trying to, you know, I share the, the ups and the downs and the transparency, hoping that, you know, more people will discover the positive side of the fire movement. And it's not just, you know, a a sacrifice and, you know, grind away, but it's just pursuing the financial independence for your family and for you. And it can just give you so much freedom and just hoping to spread the word. Absolutely. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoy talking with you. Early retirement may not be an option for you today, but if you plan ahead, it could be an option in the future. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Kristen from Rich Frugal Life. Number one, focus your spending on what makes you happy and cut the rest. Increasing your savings rate may not be easy at first, but if you look at ways to cut the spending on areas you don't care much about, that could be a great starting place. How about getting a competitive quote on your car insurance or your homeowner's insurance or finding ways to save on your cell phone bill? Our family recently switched from Verizon after 20 years being a customer to Tello, which is on the T-Mobile platform. And uh, not only is the service better, but it cut our bill in half. So, Maybe that's something you can consider. What can you do to save on your cell phone bill, your insurance, or maybe even switching your grocery store shopping? We went from Kroger to Aldi. We saved 300 bucks a month, and that has been well, thousands of dollars of savings per year that could really make a big difference for you. But anyway, the point is, if you want to have a little bit more cushion in between what's coming in and what's going out, you got to save a little bit, right? Obviously, you can increase your income as well if you've got that lover. But if you want to save big... Focusing on some of these little areas is a great idea, but you could also focus on some of the big areas like housing, transportation, and food. Those are going to make the biggest impact if you're looking to increase your savings rate. Number two, it's okay to change your identity. In this season of your life, you may be working more hours than you want. 
Perhaps you want to change to part-time eventually, or maybe become a stay-at-home parent. And then after some time after you do that, you may want to try something else. These changes are natural and they're healthy. You don't need to be the same thing forever. You don't need to have the same identity forever. You can change. Number three, consider a Roth conversion ladder for early retirement. The Roth conversion ladder, that's a super interesting concept to me for someone who has, what do I have? I have around $300,000 in traditional retirement accounts. That's the pre-tax stuff. Even if I don't want to use it for early retirement like Kristen has, I may just want to get the tax hit out of the way now while my income is a little lower and while tax rates are still favorable because the amount of debt in our country has... Oh my gosh, at this point, it's a little scary. (laughs) They're going to need to increase their revenue eventually. And remember, everybody, the R in IRS stands for revenue. So, you know, they're going to get it eventually. (laughs) So if you can pay the taxes today and maybe even use the converted funds before the traditional retirement age, that might be something to consider. I know I'm considering it. And those are my top three takeaways, everybody. I would love to hear from you on what yours were. Please hit me up on social media at Andy Hill MKM. And let's keep the conversation going. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabbitt for putting together this show on audio. And we are Digital Marketing for supporting us on Instagram and social media. Dan Hines for helping us with our YouTube videos. And Mandy Burt for her stellar writing. This content, everybody, is not possible without all these folks. So thank all of you for putting it together. I appreciate it. Before we go for the day, I want to encourage you to join our Thriving Families Facebook community. This is a free Facebook group where we are helping each other thrive as young families. So one thing we like to do in that group is share our goals. And group member Angelo had these fun annual goals to share recently. Number one, achieve a net worth of $300,000. Number two, spend more time outdoors with the soon-to-be wife and daughter. And then number three, get on a plane to go somewhere after being tied down with COVID and a two-year-old these past couple of years with a smiley, laughy face at the end there. (laughs) Congratulations, Angelo, for setting this intention this year. You're purposeful about how you want to spend your year. That is really cool. And as a goal-oriented guy, I just have to say, this is fantastic. And net worth building, obviously, is a huge part of your plan this year. It's also a huge part of Kristen's plan Uh, with her early retirement, investing early and often. That seemed to have worked for her. So uh, keep going with that, Angelo. And also, everybody, I like Angelo's combination of financial improvement and enjoying life today. That's a really important part of the conversation that we need to keep having when it comes to family financial independence. Can I get a round of applause for our friend Angelo and his commitment to improving his life this year? Very cool, Angelo. Nice work, nice work. If you want to join our free Thriving Families Facebook community, please go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. 
That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. You'll have to answer three questions to make sure you're not a robot and you can hang out with us in there. And the best part of being in this group is contributing. So if you have a question or you want to share something that's going on great with you, your wins, please do that. That encourages a more fun, more participation, and we really appreciate it. I hope to see you there. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Barbara Schur. You can learn new things at any time in your life if you're willing to be a beginner. If you actually learn to like being a beginner, the whole world opens up to you. Embrace new adventures, my friends. Carpe diem. 